2: As you know, this podcast is supported primarily by you, the listeners, and every month we trot out the names of those who are worthy of honor and praise due to their joining of the serried ranks of those who have supported this podcast in its ongoing quest to exist. Donors this month consist entirely of Gregory, who shall be known henceforward as Laird Gregory, the Muggy. Patrons include Jacob, who shall be known henceforward as Skartbell Jacob Fitzmanager, Thank you, Jacob, for your contribution to the cause. Jan Frederick shall be known as Grand Duke Jan Frederick, the dry thunderstorm of Yastarina. Good on you, Jan Frederick. Admiral Brittany, the somewhat alarming pirate queen of Sweetwater Draw, has upped her donation and shall henceforward be known as Admiral Brittany, the somewhat alarming pirate queen of Sweetwater Draw, and the botswain of the Royal Whaleboat. Thank you to all of our donors and patrons. You keep the lights on and help me pay my bills every month. And I'm not being facetious about that. If you would like to join their surried ranks, please proceed to the podcast website, Podcast.weebly.com, and go to the support page, where you will find methods of supporting the podcast. You can also go to the store page, which is an actual thing now. We are using Amazon Merch as our store. We have two shirts up there now. More will be coming. And I, I should say that the more everybody buys, the more stuff I can offer right now it's kind of just shirts i'm really hoping that if people really hop on board and buy a t-shirt of their choice that uh, i will be offered more things that i can potentially sell head on over to the store page and check that out and thank you all for listening sorry for the delay for this episode i hope you enjoy it so let's get to it
1: when king alfonso ordered count Don Raimondo to settle people in Alviera there came to the town a great number of good men from the five towns and from Lara and some from Covellida. and those from Covellida and Lara came first and on entering the town they studied the flight of birds and those who knew how to read the signs saw that it would be good to settle there and they made their homes near the water and those of the five towns who came after them also studied the birds and we who came with them was a more skillful augur and he said that those who settled near the water would achieve feats of arms but they would not be as powerful or as honorable as those who settled higher in the middle of town and he ordered those who came with him to make their homes there and the old men told us and we judged for ourselves when we arrived that this augur spoke truly His people did all things well and serving God and their Lord gained much honour and power and because those who came from the five towns were the most numerous they called the other people who came to Avila, Serranos, mountain dwellers but used pejoratively. But God caused the entire population to prosper and everyone bought, sold and engaged in all kinds of trafficking so making handsome profits. And those who were called Serranos exercised themselves with arms and undertook the defense of others. Quote from Those Who Work, an anthology of sources edited by Peter Speed.
2: Quote read by Christopher Fernandez Pakenham, host of the Age of Victoria podcast.
0: Everyone's right, and no one is sorry start and the end of the story, from the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning.
2: Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, and this is episode 56, The Class System Part 3, The Commoners Part 2, Urban Commoners Part 4, The Urban Class System. Over the last few episodes, I've been describing the wider context of urban growth in the early Middle Ages, as the Frankish Empire collapsed and was replaced by a chaotic cultural zone that contained no real central government, but which allowed for the growth of the economy. Last time out, we saw this process finally enter the historical record, as the nobility began writing down their deals with the various urban communes and charters. These legal documents told us a bit about how urban societies were governed, loosely, by a kind of urban oligarchy, while much of the rest of life was organized, loosely, into guilds. Today I'm going to elaborate on this picture by describing the different social classes within the city, and a little bit of the conditions that all citizens in the city confronted together. I wanted to get through more today, but this episode got to huge proportions, so I have cut it in two. The good news is that both halves are basically written, so the next episode should come out fairly soon. Before we get to that, however, we need to get back to one of the topics I discussed way back at the beginning of these episodes on Medieval Society, the Weberian Socioeconomic Pyramid. Way back in those days, when the world was young and the air hummed with purpose, I talked about how modern conceptions of social hierarchy don't really apply in the Middle Ages. Max Weber's extremely influential conception of social status as a product of wealth on the one hand and social status on the other hand was not something that they were familiar with in the Middle Ages, and so I have assiduously avoided it in these discussions of the Middle Ages. I did hint, however, that within the medieval social class system, this modern concept might be used to express real differences in groupings where there wasn't a good simple explanation that was of the time. Today, we're going to indulge in a little bit of this Weberian sociology as we describe the urban commoner class. I don't want to dwell on this because the entire concept is anachronistic. People in the Middle Ages didn't think of things this way, but it will help us in our understanding of living conditions because, even in the Middle Ages, having a lot of money and power would change the way you lived. Even though people in the Middle Ages didn't think in those terms necessarily, for our purposes, understanding things in terms of an upper class, a middle class, and a lower class will help us sort of organize our discussion as we move through. Just so long as we understand that this is a pedagogical tool and not something necessarily real. Okay? Good. At the top of this system, we sort of have the urban elites. In Germany, they were called burghers. In France, the bourgeoisie. We might call them the city fathers and their families. As we discussed last time out, this group of super wealthy families came to dominate the political life of most medieval cities early on as a kind of closed oligarchy consisting of the wealthiest families in the city. According to Henri Perrin, one of the leading lights of the received narrative, these people were people whose ancestors had been itinerant merchants, who had then settled down during the foundation of the settlement in question and became leading families, uh, the settlement happening at the behest of the local nobility. I have already indicated that I disagree with this view, but let me explain why in detail now. While itinerant merchants did exist in the early Middle Ages, most of the evidence we have of them are of people who were almost... Beggars, vagabonds, sleeping in the open and subject, alternatively, to pity and contempt. McCormick spent a little time discussing one of these figures. I'm going to summarize here what he said. He didn't give the original quote, and I haven't been able to track it down down the original source, but the concept is illustrative. Uh, there is a figure who is a, a kind of a merchant who had identified a small price difference in salt between two cities that were 100-ish miles apart. The merchant had a donkey and a developmentally disabled slave that someone had abandoned by the side of the road. The merchant spent his entire life walking back and forth between these two cities, hauling salt, loading up the donkey and the slave boy with the salt, and the tiny difference in price between these two cities constituted his entire profit, from which he fed himself the donkey and the slave. For the elucidation of everybody, of course, the slave eventually escaped, was miraculously cured by a saint's shrine, and then came back and uh, converted the master to the true religion, which gives you some idea of the source, but the larger picture of uh, itinerant merchants living this way rings pretty true. By contrast, we have another class of trader, also discussed by McCormick, who sort of maybe ring more true as the origins of the merchant class and the bourgeoisie class that we become more familiar with later in the Middle Ages. In this case... Again, I, I haven't had the chance to track down the original source, but I am going to present the full quote from McCormick because I think it's illustrative of what's going on here. Quote, Late in 851, the ruler of Frankish Italy convoked his annual assembly at Pavia. A group of merchants had traveled from Cremona to appear before the young Emperor Louis II and lodge a serious complaint against their bishop. Lord Benedict, they protested, was perpetrating illegal acts against them. Every time they moored their ships in the town port, his representatives demanded three payments. According to the merchants in Cremona, the landing fees, mooring charges, and free lunches were entirely illegal, since neither they nor their parents had ever paid them. A hearing held in the palace yielded no resolution, and Louis appointed an advisor to investigate the matter at Cremona. As it turned out, the Cremona boatmen had a point, but it was a pretty narrow one. If, in fact, they or their fathers had not paid the ship fees, it was because in the old days, they didn't own ships. The bishop's position was quite clear. By a privilege that went back to Charlemagne, he collected fees every time any and all merchants put in at the town port. The bishop sustained his case with numerous witnesses whose testimony is in the plea records. The archpriest Odalpert spoke, first having sworn on his priesthood, quote, I can remember before the times of Lord Charles and King Pepin that these men who have sued his holy church over this port never owned their own ships, nor did their families, nor did they ever bring salt from Comachio to sell in this port, except in modern times under Bishop Panochard. The priest Leonard spoke similarly. The priest Gudapert, having sworn on his priesthood and having been interrogated, said, I know as far back as the times of Lord Charles and King Pepin that these people never owned their own ships and brought salt from Camacho to trade, except if they brought salt and other goods in common with the people from Camacho aboard a ship from Camacho and paid in common the landing and mooring fees to the king and the Church of Cremona, according to this pact." Over and over, churchmen, laymen, and port officials repeated the same story. These men had never owned ships in the old days of Charlemagne and his son Pippin. If any of them or their fathers had traded, it was aboard vessels out of Camaccio, which had in fact paid the customary dues. They confirmed the essential point made by the first witnesses. The men of Cremona had started to operate trading ships only recently, in the episcopates of Panochard and Benedict. Unsurprisingly, the imperial envoys found for the bishop and dismissed the new boatman's suit. End quote. There's a bunch of things that we could possibly discuss here, but I'd like to disregard the very interesting legal arguments that we could be talking about and focus in on who these merchants were and how they became merchants. I think the testimony of the priest who said that if their families had traded in the past, it was as people who were shipping out on ships from Camacho and taking their goods with them in common. And this isn't a point that McCormick makes, but personally, one of the versions of the development of this merchant class that I find most particularly convincing is that the merchants sort of just being sort of a couple leading families who got together their assets and found a way to transport it and may have taken on goods from their neighbors since they were shipping things anyway and uh, ended up doing pretty well in these sort of semi-collective group arrangements. And then ultimately, you know, because they were doing well, they reinforced their leadership within the community. And then having leadership in the community gave them more opportunities for getting more wealth, which created a self-reinforcing cycle. An alternative way to view it, and this is the version that McCormick sticks to later on in the text, is that these families were just nobodies. Local peasants who did some day labor with the merchants from Camaccio or something along those lines, made enough money doing that to get their own boats, and ultimately became merchants. I think the difference between the two visions is is kind of fine-grained. I like my version because it it sort of goes along with the very kind of communitarian nature of uh, villages in the Middle Ages, but ultimately the difference is pretty unimportant. The more important thing to elaborate on here is that as slimy as their legal arguments were, these arguments are actually pretty clever according to the legal norms of the time. These men had to have had some knowledge of the world and the legal system to make this kind of argument, especially given the fact that in the medieval legal system, random peasants didn't end up getting to make their arguments to the emperor of Italy. These men had to have some education, they had to have some kind of connections, and political and economic pull that made it possible for them to make their case that also would have made them natural civic leaders. Needless to say, none of these advantages were advantages that were enjoyed by the itinerant salt merchant with his donkey and unfortunate slave. The idea that a lord would ride up to the salt merchant one day and say, Hey, you seem smelly. I want to found a city. I heard they were neat. And then the salt merchant would like pull out a conch shell or something and blow a note summoning all the other sad starving vagabonds to a spot to found some sort of settlement, it's an idea that I don't find very convincing. It's much more likely to me that the lord's family would simply expand over time on a set of relationships with families that were already in sight. If the family in the village was already a leading family, the lord would just expand on that relationship, which would provide expanding advantages for that leading family. Once the city began to grow, itinerant merchants would probably have come in and settled down, and they might have prospered and ended up joining the oligarchical elites. That certainly happened. But the general origins of the leaders of these new cities in Europe were probably more from the leadership of the group of people that were already in sight, rather than just random beggars. That isn't quite the whole story, however. The received narrative is also very insistent that these new civic leaders were entirely commoners in origin. But, to my mind, excluding the nobility from this group is actually a glaring omission. This is one of those places where the boundaries between groups, things get muddy and permeable. Now, you might forgive me for excluding the nobility, given the title of this episode, since we're supposed to be focusing on commoners, but we actually already know that the exclusion of the nobility from the upper crusts of the cities is is untrue. As I've said before many times, in Italy, the senatorial and equestrian classes largely remained in place in the cities, and as the cities were clearly the happening places with the upper classes that were already in sight when the Goths and the Lombards and the Franks came in. They ultimately joined them in these cities and ultimately settled there. These families owned land in the countryside, but they lived in the city and were very explicitly the main ruling classes of these cities in the early Middle Ages. They were also explicitly noble. As we've mentioned a couple times before, the economic and humanitarian churn of the early Middle Ages probably meant that this noble class mixed with the rising class of merchants over time. This is something we'll talk about more later, but that's almost certainly what happened. The nobility were a major part of the cities in Italy. Now, historians are often careful to say that the nobility of Northern Europe didn't adopt this urban lifestyle the way it did in Italy. But then they had less of a chance early on. As we've said, there were fewer cities. There were thin survivals. But that kind of misses the point to some extent. Where the cities survived, from late antiquity, we have already seen there's a tendency of noble families to want to turn these locations into administrative centers. As the cities became more independent of the nobility over the course of the Middle Ages, and as they sprouted up in more and more places, the attraction of these places probably grew. This might seem a little counterintuitive, but if the cities were not the strict possession of any one noble family, they would represent a good neutral ground for families from an area to meet, negotiate, and make use of urban amenities. And to be clear, those amenities included access to trade routes, credit, and political power over the city's hinterland. These were all very strong attractions, and fairly early in the Middle Ages, we have records of noble families maintaining households in cities. This only grew more common over time, and again, there is this wall between 1000 and 1100 where we don't have much written social historical evidence before that time so just because we hit that horizon doesn't mean that people weren't doing that before there's a certain argument from silence there that i recognize but i think it's fair to say that noble families who lived in the area of a city probably interacted with the city on a social level Now, once the nobles began living in the cities, it wasn't long before they began marrying into the wealthy merchant families of the area. This is sometimes presented, in later centuries, as a feckless nobility, exchanging a title for the cash of the merchant class in a system of semi-shameful marriage alliances. But I tend to see that as kind of a judgment that represents cultural choices from a later period. In the early Middle Ages, the nobility lacked a really rigid class ideology. People moved in and out of the nobility all the time based on their military prowess and their political power. When you mix wealth and powerful young men and women from the newly powerful landed nobility in the same circle with young men and women of the newly wealthy and powerful merchant families in the early medieval cities, in my mind, nature will find a way. No, I'm, I'm simply saying that life... Uh finds a way. At least that's how I see it. Over time, walls came up socially between the merchant classes and the noble classes. As the nobility gained more of a firm ideology, it became harder and harder to cross that line. And to be clear, these walls came up because the vast majority of the nobility in Northern Europe remained on the land, and that's where their culture formed and where it calcified, even as more and more began to keep urban residences. The marriages continued, but over time, they became shameful. In any case, the rulers of the urban communes were thus a wealthy group of merchant families, many of them probably had noble blood and political ties of some kind, and their families had a long tradition of serving leadership roles in their community, despite some people from the outside moving into the group. And just to close, we can add in the more prominent members of the clergy to this group as well. So the upper classes of the city in our sort of more vibarian conception would certainly have included the bishop and abbots and people like that. This group, this upper class within the urban areas, would have been the most comfortable group in terms of living standards. They usually owned multiple buildings in the city, and in their primary residence, they would have lived with a large number of servants. That's a pretty good wrap-up of the upper class. Let's move on to the middle class. In these communes, the middle class, as we would conceive of it today, traditionally are asserted to have been the artisans. Generally speaking, these would be people who owned their own businesses, or who at least earned enough in trade as to be basically comfortable. It's traditional to lump the less well-off merchants into this group, and to generally do a lot of hand-wringing as to whether or not the guild masters should be in this group or in the merchant elite. I'm going to put them in this group. To this group, I think we should add some of the more well-paid servants who lived with the upper classes, and most of the members of the clergy, most of the ship captains, and probably a good number of the officers of the mercenary guilds. We should not attempt to include lawyers or other practitioners of a profession, since most of these social functions were actually performed by the clergy at the time. Although, that said, I would include a fair number of members of the clergy into this group. (laughs) Obviously, a lot of this is arbitrary, and this is a very diverse group. Everyone from blacksmiths to crossbow mercenaries land in this group. This kind of person would have been basically comfortable by the standards of the time. If they were an artisan, they would live behind or above their shop in an extended household that included any of their employees. The others I named may have owned their own property as well, but in any case, they would have had stable lodgings for their families. A lot of the breakdown between these groups has to do with lodging and living conditions, because, again, people in the Middle Ages didn't break themselves down into these groups necessarily. At the bottom of the ladder, we will find anyone who was not really their own person in the, the standards of the time, and also the completely destitute. So we've got your apprentices, most of the journeymen, most of the servants, most of the mercenaries, and the parish priests, if there were any. We're going to talk more about the parish priests in two episodes. Apprentices and journeymen were people who were in the process of learning their craft by doing work for a guild master. Interestingly, apprentices and journeymen had some protections that modern employees often lack. For example, it was usually illegal to fire someone without going through a long explanatory process that involved the family of the person they were trying to fire. If the family was not satisfied with the rationale, this could cause legal or even physical conflict. Apprentices, journeymen, and servants were also guaranteed food, lodging, medical care, and time off for religious observances. During a period of economic growth, such as what we're discussing right now, being an apprentice or a journeyman would not have been that bad, and being a trusted servant could result in a generous salary and improved social position. But it was not all good news. Many apprentices, journeymen, and even servants were paid in food rather than coin. The lodgings they were guaranteed were usually just cots, if that, on the floor of the workshop or warehouse of their employer. They were thus always on call, and of course because they were part of their employer's household, they were considered children in the eyes of the law. That gave their employer a very wide latitude to deny them food, or to beat them if they didn't work up to the standards of the master. While well, it should be said that it was illegal to beat a servant to death, and the records of things are very rare, the very fact that I need to say this gives you some idea of the lot in life enjoyed by this group. You didn't really want to be an apprentice or a journeyman especially in bad economic times. Runaway apprentices were technically in breach of contract, and could be physically dragged back to their master's house if caught. Of course, here too, the master's power was limited by the family of the apprentice. If the apprentice was unhappy, the family could get them out of the contract, and the threat of retribution from the family would have offered protection from the most extreme forms of brutality. But keeping in mind that this is a period where things that we would now consider child abuse were considered part of the positive development of a child, this kind of protection only went so far. And anyway, all of this was reliant on the kinds of interpersonal ties that underlie so much of the medieval system. For apprentices with no family, or a family that just didn't care, if the master was extremely powerful, these protections could all break down. In many ways, however, the apprentices and journeymen had it good compared to the truly destitute. Those unable to work due to illness, disability, or age did not have a lot of options. This list should be understood to include any women without a living male relative. Medieval society expected kin groups to care for their own, and anyone isolated from their kin group fell through the cracks of this society in many ways. The church did theoretically provide some social services, but then the church went through cycles of how it viewed these responsibilities. Sometimes it emphasized the deserving poor, like pilgrims and monks sometimes offering assistance to all. Sometimes they turned everyone away. As we said last time, the guilds provided social services as well, but usually only for the families of members. Some guilds offered more widespread assistance, but this was not universal. Wealthy families were also expected to send their table scraps out to beggars on the street, which must have helped somewhat... As in any time period where the care for those most in need is left to private individuals, the ability of this ad hoc system to provide for the poor could be great, or it could be completely abysmal, and which you faced could be a lottery that you played with fate. Poverty was a big issue all across Europe, but in the cities it took a unique form. Cottagers and day laborers in villages faced hardships that were directly tied to the success or failure of the harvest. In extreme conditions, they could face starvation or be forced to flee, seeking greener pastures. But if they stayed in their village, they often had the support of king groups, their lord and their friends. Cities were different. Cities drew migrants from their hinterland who often had no family ties to their neighbors. The reasons for the choice to move are various. A point emphasized by traditional historians is that, in the comparatively large and anonymous populations of the cities, serfs seeking freedom from their unfree status could escape the law. The common phrase from the time, city air is free air, has become the mantra of this narrative, and there were laws that said things like, people who stayed in a city for a year and a day were free of their feudal obligations. But I think this actually somewhat oversimplifies the situation, especially since my research indicates that unfree status wasn't as crippling as previous generations made it out to be. certainly wasn't something you wanted, but people who were technically unfree often became leading families in a village. I find the more familiar motivation of economic advancement more satisfying, especially when combined with the low agricultural productivity of the period and the strong need to remain on good terms with one's neighbors to survive lean times. A young day laborer on bad terms with their neighbors might well seek greener pastures in the city once it became clear that that season's crops were likely to fail. If you were facing starvation and you had no personal ties to an area, how much worse could the city be? Once in the city, this group might have found opportunity. After all, this was a period of economic growth. On the other hand, if they truly had no family ties to the town, they might well face a bleak future and slip into the ranks of the truly poor. Needless to say, this group attempted to make ends meet in many desperate ways. Some joined monastic communities, some became mercenaries, some turned to crime, some turned to sex work, which might or may not be considered crime, depending on the city or the time period. Some took on other low-paying, despised, or dangerous jobs. We often know very little about them, but we know that they were there, because we know that some of these jobs existed. Now, as I said going into this, the class distinctions just discussed can be pretty anachronistic when applied to the Middle Ages. They are useful in that they let us make sense of how a selection of individuals might be expected to relate to their society in terms we understand. But for the class identity of the individuals at the time, things are much more complicated. Of the groups we just discussed, it's likely that only the city elite had anything approaching a real class identity. In other words, they would have had some sort of vision of themselves as sort of above the hoi polloi. Everyone else would have defined themselves by that complex mixture of interpersonal bonds that appears again and again in our look at the Middle Ages. To understand some of these bonds and the way these bonds affected these individuals, we need to start looking at living conditions in the cities and the efforts made by the cities at improvement. The most important piece of this puzzle as it relates to identity, and this is something I've sort of already referenced, is the housing situation, which is likely amongst the most alien aspects of medieval society to modern people. As opposed to modern urban areas, which are often deeply segregated geographically, technology and social structure in the early Middle Ages meant that all the social classes lived together in a very real way, at least in urban areas. Without public transportation, telecommunications, or automobiles, the economic incentives I mentioned in the urban theory episodes pretty much required residents to cluster together very, very close to the middle of the settlement. This issue was often exacerbated by the presence of a city wall, which gave a pretty good, very visible, visceral symbol of where it was a good idea to live and where it wasn't. The result was eventually a large amount of crowding, but this didn't happen all at once. Archaeology indicates that the first houses were the same kind of peasant houses being built out in the countryside. Whether or not you agree with my thesis that cities evolved from villages in Northern Europe, peasants migrating to the city would certainly have built all new houses along familiar patterns. You know, Whatever was there before, people coming in would just build a house, and a house meant whatever they were used to as a house. As the town grew, the spaces between the houses were built out, and the back lots were sold off, eventually having houses of their own. Eventually, if a family needed more space, they would be forced to simply add floors onto their existing houses. Because the houses were intended as single story structures, adding floors put strain on the structure it was not designed for. But this was often at least temporarily offset by the fact that the houses were so closely packed in that they could lean on each other for support. They couldn't topple over. Unfortunately, this did not prevent collapses entirely, and when they did occur, the best-case scenario was that the building would pancake down into the basement, killing most of the occupants. In the worst-case scenario, the collapse of the house would lead others to collapse as well, possibly leading to an outbreak of fire and a city-wide crisis. Podcast footnote. From a theory perspective, it's interesting to note that the archaeology and written records attesting to this process strike an extremely familiar note for anyone who studied growth patterns in the... Favela cities of the modern developing world. They're also often called slum cities and things like that. These so-called slums are large areas of informal construction built around a growing city center, generally without the actual permission of the city, the state, or even the landowner. While there is a wide variation of material conditions in these places, depending on their age, informal, high-density construction is very much the norm, and unless there is assistance from an activist group or a part of the local government, the construction is usually not up to any kind of building code, and there are usually no amenities. The buildings are generally erected by families over time, as need, opportunity, and building materials allow. If the flavella is allowed to exist for more than a decade or so, you often see families add on to the buildings in increasingly interesting, eccentric, or frankly alarming ways. A picture that stuck with me from school was two houses built by one family. The parents built a nice little house at the street level, but wanted a new house for their adult children. So they built an I-beam frame around their house, poured a concrete pad above their house, and built a second single-family house above the first one. Needless to say, such districts face a plethora of difficulties and hazards, especially during natural disasters. For our purposes, it's just very interesting to see that this process played out in such different cultures, in such different places, and in such different times. End podcast footnote. For the houses themselves, similar designs developed over time. Again, we're about to uh, engage in some overgeneralization over the spread of geographies of the Middle Ages, but for the purposes of discussion... The front rooms of these houses were usually devoted to a workshop, though if the family was particularly wealthy, it might instead be a parlor for meeting clients and contacts. Because natural light was the only affordable source of light, these front rooms with windows were necessarily required for any work that required seeing. The back rooms of the house, which could be entirely closed off from light, depending on how things were built, these were usually used as warehouses or as sleeping quarters for the servants, apprentices, and journeymen. Usually, of course, they were both warehouse- and sleeping quarters, all at the same time. Some families kept farm animals there, and the rich ones might have stables. The second floor was often used as the family hall, which served as a living space, dining area, and work area. This was certainly the case for wealthy families, was often the case for middle-class families, and could sometimes be true in buildings being rented to the poor if the landlord provided communal meals with the rent, which often happened. So this was sort of a public space for people who lived in the building. For families without parlors, these halls were vital for entertaining and conducting business. There were sometimes back rooms on the second floor where more prestigious servants slept or extended family members. Cooking facilities could also be located on this floor, though wealthy families preferred to keep cooking activities in sort of an out structure to reduce the risk of fire and smell. In contrast to the first two floors, which were in many ways public-facing, the third floor and up were usually for the family of the house. This meant bedrooms and storage for valuable materials, with possibly a particularly trusted servant living there as well. Many houses also had an attic, and I have read it that the least prestigious or the most prestigious servant stayed there. I'm not sure which. It may depend on the interpretation or the geographic area. Certainly climbing many flights of stairs was not preferred, but the servants in the attic would be near the family and would be away from the smells of the street. At the opposite end of the house, the cellar would be used for storage or as a location for the house's cesspit. The basement could also be sleeping quarters for particularly unloved servants or tenants who played extremely low rents. If the renter and the servants were very lucky, this was not one of the houses with a cesspit. Other than the cellar, each of these floors was built such that it leaned out over the ground floor by a few feet. There were practical reasons for this, but the main one was probably just down to having more floor space in the house. This did limit the light that reached the street, but it also kept rain off pedestrians' heads. Less courteously, the cellars often had entrances that were also built out into the street past the front of the first floor of the house. These cellar entrances often lacked guardrails. Once cellars became common, complaints arose in the legal records of passers-by falling to their deaths in the cesspit cellars of the houses along the street. In terms of what it was like to live in these buildings, the life of the upper classes would be the most familiar. The family itself would have only one or two people per room, they slept on beds, and had daily routines of meals and hygiene. That said, as I have already indicated from the floor plan, even these families lived in households which not only contained their immediate family, but also a wide variety of servants and employees, and the family's business ventures were often deeply entwined with the private lives of the family. The more prestigious servants might have had some privacy, but most servants would have shared accommodations in one way or another. In Italy, as I've said, these houses would also have been fortified and had a staff of armed retainers. Even in Northern Europe, having a few bodyguards around would probably have been only prudent. Members of the urban middle class, most notably the artisans, lived in much closer quarters than the wealthy, even if they owned their property. In exceptional circumstances, the master and mistress of the house might have their own bed, but this was only in the most prosperous families. In most cases, the entire family shared a bed. The apprentices and journeymen, who were employees at the family business, often slept in the same workshop rooms in which they worked, but this wasn't always the case. In less prosperous families, with fewer employees, these individuals would also share the family bed. For individuals who were not part of a household, sources on living conditions are a bit unclear. Many individuals stayed at monasteries or with friends and relatives on a temporary basis. It seems like the idea of renting rooms did develop early on, though often on terms and under legal arrangements that are somewhat alien to our modern concepts of rental property. It seems that the earliest arrangements used a system similar to that used on the bipartite manor, where rents constituted a portion of the person's income. In any case, there were probably a variety of ad hoc arrangements. The portion of the poor that is most visible to us then usually lived as a part of another family's household. But there were probably many other arrangements. Some poor families were able to stay together in rooms or in houses that they owned, with some family members working as day laborers while others did craft piecework to help make ends meet. Poor, unconnected individuals likely ended up renting spaces in shared beds or in other kinds of ad hoc arrangements, but we don't have a lot of good evidence on how this happened. To me, the key point of this discussion of house construction and sleeping arrangements is that, especially in this earliest part of the Middle Ages, these arrangements illustrate well the failure of social and economic status to adequately explain class identity in the cities of the early Middle Ages. As much as our modern need to understand the social structure on an individualistic basis makes the pyramidal social structure convenient, you can hopefully see how it might fail here. Because medieval concepts of social structure weren't individualistic. For a poor servant who has been working for the same master for a number of years, whose bed they literally share, that master's household was likely their primary identity. The servants would support their master in court, and vice versa. If there was some kind of riot, the servants would usually help the master defend the household. We don't know what portion of the city lived outside houses like this, but even in those cases, many workers retained patron-client arrangements with landowners in the city, and business relationships with people they worked with. Of course, everyone has family or friends of some kind, so even the majority of the poorest members of the city had some kind of social bond that connected them to a larger group. In other words, most urban residents remained part of a highly coherent urban community in which the different classes were deeply integrated into family units, and these family units were bonded by friendships, guild memberships, political alliances, business relationships, marriage ties, and patronage networks. It's only on the very top end of the social hierarchy where the wealthy were able to buy space for themselves, and at the very lowest end where the truly destitute struggled to find a place in this urban order, It's only at these extreme ends of the social structure where the identity of individuals involved would not be bonded by strong family and community ties. It was this interrelated network of identity groupings that made the early medieval cities socially coherent and, to the extent that it did, allowed the government of the medieval city to function. That's about it for today. In the next episode, we're going to pivot away from this discussion of class and identity and start examining the extent to which the medieval city's government was able to govern, what concepts and concerns affected public policy choices, and the impact of all this on the quality of life in the city. Then we're going to wrap up this whole series of episodes with a big picture discussion of what all this means for the larger story of history that this podcast is attempting to tell. For now, thanks for listening and tune in very soon for another episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation.